Okay, we are in 1 Samuel, and we're in chapter 1, verse 1. Last week we spent the whole, the whole session learning about just the background of Samuel and the things that, that, that kings were called for and the author and things like that. So let's read from 1 Samuel, starting at <clears throat> verse 1 of chapter 1. Now there was a certain man from Ramathaim, Zophim, from the hill country of Ephraim, and his name was Elkanah, the son of Joram, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuf, an Ephraimite. He had two wives, the name of one was Hannah, the name of the other Penina, and Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. Now this man would go up from his city yearly to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts in Shiloh. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests to the Lord there. And when the day came that Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Penina, his wife, and to all her sons and her daughters. But to Hannah he would give a double portion, for he loved Hannah. But the Lord had closed her womb. Okay, so we see in verse 1 that it talks about the town, and it names the town uh, Ramathaim Zophim. And throughout the rest of this, this book, it refers to the town in a shortened name of Rama. But that is where Samuel would eventually be born. So it starts out with his father, Elkanah, and it talks about who they are. They are from Ephraim, so this portion of the country of Ephraim. And so his name was Elkanah, and it lists his genealogy. The son of Jehoram, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuf, an Ephraimite. Alright, so he was an Ephraimite. He was an Ephraimite by tribal association, but he was a Levite by tribal identity. So every city in Israel had to set aside land for Levites to live. And remember, Levites were of the particular tribe that could minister to the Lord. And specifically within that tribe, there was one family, and that was the descendants of Aaron, the priests, that could be the priests. So you had one tribe, of the twelve tribes, you had one tribe that was going to minister to the Lord and take care of, of, of uh, um, taking care of the tabernacle and eventually the temple and taking care of all the things associated with it, taking care of uh, uh, preparing the sacrifices and things. The ones who actually did the sacrifices were the priests, and that was of the, the family of Aaron, which was part of that tribe of Levi. So this was a Levite family living in Ephraim. And we can see there's a number of different verses in, in, in uh in Joshua 21.20, it says specifically this town within Ephraim had been set aside for the Levites within Ephraim. Because some people look at this, they say if they're Ephraimites, how could Samuel have ever risen up to be a priest? Well, he could be a priest because he was of the tribe of Ephraim, uh, I'm sorry, of the tribe of Levi, but also of the family of Aaron, the descendancy of Aaron. And this is noted for us in First Chronicles six twenty six through twenty eight and First Chronicles six thirty three through thirty eight. And so you can see the descendancy of Samuel. The Bible is 
utterly specific, so specific in detail regarding these things. And so people who think it's, you know, just like, uh, you know, a bunch of, you know, this, this telephone game where you whisper something in a person's ear and they whisper it to the next and you get some totally different story coming out the other side, is so untrue. This is entirely specific. And so we can see that Samuel's family was actually of the descendancy of, of, of Aaron because the tribe came from a, a family called Kohath, which was a Levitical name, the descendancy of Aaron. But they came from this region of Ephraim. And, it's, it, and it discusses this also in First Chronicles 6, 22 through 24. And so as you read on, you see that in verse 2, he had two wives. So this man, Elkanah, had two wives. The name of one was Hannah, which means grace, and the other was Penina, which means pearl. Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. So we see why he had two wives. So the, the scriptures tell us why he even had two wives. Because his first wife, Hannah, was barren. She could have no children. And so they were permitted to have a second wife. And this is in, in Deuteronomy 21, 15 through 17. Deuteronomy 21, 15 through 17 said that they could have more than one wife. In 25, in Deuteronomy 25, verses 5 through 10, it talks about Levitical marriage, and that was something different. What occurred in Levitical marriage is if a man was married to a woman, the man dies before having any descendant with any offspring with that woman, that woman, then the man's brother was obliged to marry his, his, his sister-in-law and raise up a seed in the name of his brother. Even if the man was already married, this was an obligation. And in fact, if he didn't fulfill this obligation, that she came and, and, and the elders would come and request of him to fulfill his obligation. If he still didn't fulfill his obligation, she was in front of the elders supposed to spit in his face and take his sandal or so, something like that. <laughs> because he wasn't fulfilling his obligation to the family. But people were allowed to have a second wife, and in particular if the first wife couldn't bear children, because this issue of descendancy was huge in that culture. In verse 3, Now this man would go up from his city yearly to worship. And, and uh, um, so this was something, this, this worship was something that was prescribed for them to do. So in Exodus 34:23 and Deuteronomy 16:16, 16, 16, it, it said that they were to go up and they were to worship. In fact, men were supposed to go up and worship three times a year. They were to go to wherever the, the tabernacle was, wherever the ark was, they were to go into worship. Eventually, so the ark was here in this town called Shiloh. Uh, and, and we know that it was put here from that verse in Joshua that, that the ark was, was set there in Shiloh in, in Joshua 18.1. That is when they came into the land, it had been established there in Shiloh. It would eventually be moved to Nod. The priests of Nod were all killed. And after that, it was going to be moved to, um, it was going to, be moved to Jerusalem uh, when they were going to build the temple shortly after uh, it, it moved there. So, this barrenness, barrenness was often considered, a, a, a infertility was often a, a mark of judgment in those days. And because God said in Deuteronomy 7, verse 14, He said that, that uh, uh, if you're faithful, I will give you children. If you're not, you'll be barren. 
there were other women who were barren in Scripture. So, um, and, and these were godly women. So look in Genesis chapter 25. Turn, over to Gen- turn back to Genesis chapter 25. And you see that, that Rebekah, who was Isaac's wife, so remember there was Abraham, then his son Isaac. Isaac was married to a woman named Rebekah. And in Genesis chapter 25, verse 19, it says, Now these are the records of the generation of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham became the father of Isaac. And Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, of Aramian, uh, the Aramian of Padan Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramian, to be his wife. Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was barren. And the Lord answered him, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. What a novel concept that a man should pray for his wife. It says that she was barren. He prayed for his wife, and she conceived. The man prayed for his wife, and then she conceived. That's a good practice. Elkanah was a godly man. There were not many people that were godly in Israel in this time. He was part of the select remnant that really sought the Lord. But we don't see anything in here where he himself is praying for his wife. He may have, but there's nothing specific on that. So his wife, Hannah, was barren. And then it tells us that in verse 3, he would go... He would go up from his city yearly to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts in Shiloh. So, he was a godly man. He had this practice of going up yearly, and his family would often go with him. So, women weren't required to do this, yet Hannah, we know, would go with him. And Penina, it seems that she would go too, and also her sons, her children would, would go. So, he was a godly man bringing up his family in a godly way. This is unusual. It is unusual, even in the church, for Christian men to lead their families in spiritual ways. You say, well, no, that's how it should be. Okay? Well, how many of you came from Christian homes and your father was certainly the spiritual leader in that home? Now, some of you will raise your hands and others of you will say, well, no, my dad never really led this. My mom did this. The Scriptures, it is a good thing for a man to be the spiritual leader in his home. This is a good thing. So young men, listen to this. This is part of your job. And I know you're really busy, and I know you'll have a career, but just get this in your mind now. When I go into elementary schools in this city, like I've done several things for Teach for America and things, and I go into these these schools around the cities, I tell these young people in elementary school... I say, how many of you are going to college? And they all look around. We can't go to college. And then I say, change your mind. Everyone in this room is going to college. And I begin to get them to nod along with me because this is a good practice for them to get in their minds that when they grow up, they're going to go into college. When you grow up, men, you are going to lead your homes spiritually. And that, that means something. That doesn't mean you just walk in there and say, look, I'm the leader, listen to me. That doesn't work for very long. <laughs> that, that you lead. That you wake up your family in the morning 
and you teach them the Word of God. You spend some time in family devotions with them. That you lead to church. So in other words, you want to go fishing with your sons. If it's more than once a year, you don't. You go fishing with your sons on Saturdays. You lead them to church on Sundays. Make that a day where you set apart to honor God in that. Where even if you're not particularly feeling really well, you know, you're just kind of feeling tired and everything, you know, it's Sunday morning, you're working all week, you go. You go. You lead your family. You have this practice. This is what men are supposed to do. Alconomay said, why should I go all the way to, to Shiloh, you know, this different city? You know, I've got to walk all the way down there and, you know, bring this ox behind me for this sacrifice and all this, whatever else, you know, doves or whatever else they were going to offer up and all this grain offering and all this wine offering, whatever they were going to offer up. Why do it? I can worship God right here in my home. I can do that. I mean, Mama's a particularly good place. God dwells here too, you know. Just turn on the TV set and watch the guy on TV. What's wrong with that? Well, there's a lot wrong with that because you don't have a sense of community. And that, that preacher on the TV set is not going to perform your, your, your uh, you know, not going to perform your, your um, funeral for you, for example. You need a community. Or if your wife has a miscarriage. Or if your children need prayer. They're not going to be there for you. You need the community of the body of Christ. This is a good thing to do. So get it in your mind that you are going to lead your family spiritually. And this comes with a cost now as well. That you begin to learn the Word of God. And begin to do that. So Elkanah would do this and he'd go down with his family. And he'd worship there and he'd sacrifice to the Lord. Now sacrifice had a cost. We're going to see some of the sacrifices that they would bring. But these were expensive things. Sacrifice has a cost. We are taking up for our church now in this Christmas season the offerings for the Baptist missions. This is a good thing. You say, well, you don't make much money. You certainly have five dollars, don't you? You give something. It is a good practice to learn how to give. And you can't use this excuse, well, I'm a student. When I make a good salary, then I'll give. No, you give now. You give now. You learn to do this now. Giving out of your sustenance is a good thing. That means that if you have $5 that you were going to use at Starbucks for a cup of coffee, you give that. That means out of something that sustains you, you give. It is good to learn how to give. Even if you're a student. And I know growing up in Christian homes, you're used to you know, your parents giving and you didn't because you grew up in the home. But now you're no longer in your parents' home. You give. You give. You learn to give. It is a good thing. So they would worship and they would sacrifice. It was up to them now to worship and to sacrifice. It's up to you now to do this. And then it says, the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests to the Lord there. So Eli was this, this, this older priest. And then Hophni and Phinehas were the, were the two priests that were serving. Because in fact, Levites served from the ages of 25 to 50. And, and uh, uh, so Eli was older than this, so he wasn't doing the daily sacrificial work. But his sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were doing this, and we'll read more about them later. And it says, when the day came, in verse 4, that Alcana sacrificed, he would give portions to Penina, Penina his wife, and her sons and her daughters, 
But also to Hannah, he would give a double portion, for he loved Hannah. But the Lord had closed her womb. So, part of the sacrifice was that they were to boil certain meat. Part of that went to the priests. Part of that to the Levites. And part of that came back to the family. So, it was a sacrifice that was offered to God. And from this sacrifice, the family got a portion of that back to have a family meal together. This is what was prescribed in the law of Moses for them to do. And this is the food that he's talking about. So of his portion that had been offered up, all of these sacrifices, a portion he gets back to serve his own family, a portion goes to the priests, a portion goes to the Levitical community. A portion is burned up completely as an offering to God. Of this portion he would serve his family. So to Penina he would give her portion, and he'd give it to Penina's sons and daughters. So she had plural sons, she had plural daughters. So she had at least two sons and at least two daughters and maybe more. So Penina was in fact quite fruitful in the sense of having children. And Elkanah would give to her. Then it says that he would give a double portion to Hannah for he loved Hannah. And that doesn't mean that he didn't love Penina. It just is underscoring that he loved her in spite of her being barren, and he would give her a double portion. You say, well, why does he give twice as much to her that he did to Penina? Well, because there was something special going on in her life. If you have a child, you may have several children, but if you have a child that struggles with one thing in particular, you may give to that child a little more in a certain area, just to, to let that child know that, in spite of this difficulty that you have, you're still special to me. That's not a wrong thing to do. You may spend a little more time with one of your children that particularly needs more time. So, it's saying that he loved Hannah, didn't, doesn't say, and he hated Penina. doesn't say that at all. It says that he would give to her her portion, he'd give to all her children. But Hannah had no children, so he'd give her a double portion just to underscore, I really love you. I still love you. My love for you is still there. And you see this man reaching out to Hannah in a special way. So his love was still there for Hannah. And then it says, though, in in verse 5, But to Hannah he would give a double portion, for he loved Hannah, but the Lord had closed her womb. So it was the Lord who closed her womb. The Bible says, isn't it God who makes the eyes to see, the ears to hear, makes a man deaf or blind. It is God who does this. God had closed her womb. This is why when there's a sickness, we petition God. And God doesn't always grant exactly what we want. He doesn't always, but we ask and we petition Him in the name of His Son. But it was God who closed her womb. Now in verse 6, we see something that was happening in this house. In verse 6, her rival, however, would provoke her bitterly bitterly, to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. It happened year after year, as often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she would provoke her, so she wept and would not eat. Then O'Connor, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep and why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not better to you than ten sons? So, you see some trouble that was going on in this home. This was a godly man, Elkanah. 
He loved God and He sacrificed. But did you know that His home wasn't perfect? So Christian homes are not always perfect. There's problems. There's rivalries. There's arguments. But there's something that happens when you commit to this marriage. You say, this is our marriage and I am committed to it. And I'm a living testimony of one who has not had a perfect marriage, but we have stuck it on out. And for us, we went into this and we have maintained that divorce was never an option. So that when we had disagreements, when we had arguments, when we had even sharp disagreements, I mean, we'd seek out counsel. We sought out counsel from the church. We sought out counsel from friends. We sought out counsel from professional counselors. Whatever we had to do to make this thing work. But remember, you go into this that divorce is not an option. Because problems arise in homes, in the godliest of homes. And what will you do? When you leave that marriage and you get into another one and now problems arise in that one. You leave that one and go on to the next. A lot of people do that. They just keep going on and on and on. And very often, after about the third one, they think about, wow, it was really a whole lot better with the first one. Really. It's a whole lot better with the first one. If I'm making this third one work, I certainly could have made that first one work. So there's problems in the home, but there's problems that arose from his having two wives as well. If a man has multiple wives, even in succession, there are problems. If a woman has multiple husbands, even in succession, there are problems. And remember what it said of kings, they should should not multiply their wives. It is good to have one spouse. It is a very good thing. But there was a rivalry now in the home. And so Panina wasn't a particularly godly woman and was picking on Hannah and picking on her for the fact that she was barren. That was something that Hannah herself could not change. God had closed her womb. So she was getting picked on for something God had done. That's like picking on someone for the way that they look or for how tall they are or for how short they are. Things that are beyond their control. I don't know if you've ever been at the receiving end of abuse and I would bet that every one of us has. To have people pick on us, to have people laugh at us, This is, in fact, something that really drew me to Christ, is when I saw Christians and I saw them gathering together and and they would sit in the cafeteria uh, in college and they would laugh together and their laughing was never at anyone else's expense. And I would watch them together and I'd sit with them and they'd be laughing and enjoying one another, but their laughter wasn't hurting anybody who was sitting there at the table. And what I knew from the world was that if you had a group of people laughing, one person in that group wasn't laughing. They were in pain. And they may be smiling, but inside there was deep pain. 
And that's really one of the things that drew me to listen to Christians. So there was this, this rivalry going on. And look at, look at Elkanah. This is really remarkable in verse 8. Verse 8. Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not better to you than ten sons? Now, I have been told by women who have been unable to bear children. They say, they have told me, and I've, I've learned this from them, that if you, that anything you say to try to encourage a woman who cannot bear children, it's like putting salt in the wound. In the, in the wound. And I say, so what do you say? And they say, you say, I am so sorry. So, you know, I can try to encourage them and do this and do It's like putting salt in, 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 in their wound. That I, I should say, I am so sorry. Because the hurt, the pain goes so deep. But look at, look at Elkanah. The man is a good man. He's a really good man and he's really trying. He looks at Hannah. He says, why do you weep? And why don't you eat? And why is your heart so sad? Aren't I better to you than ten sons? The man is trying. Ladies, I want you to see this. At times, your husband or your fiancé will really try to encourage you. They're really trying. Everything within them is trying to encourage you. But they're not James Dobson. You know, they're not trained counselors. They're doing the very best they can. Elkanah was a good man. And he was trying to encourage her. So what do you do when someone's sad? What are you sad about? Come on, eat. And the person who said, you don't know the depth of my hurt. Get away from me. Look, Elkanah was doing the best he knew how. Most men are not trained counselors. Most men are not trained psychiatrists. But they're trying. They're trying to do something. You know, one day... uh, a student of mine had been dating this guy for a long time, and they were on the verge of getting engaged, and this, this, this girl's father died, and she had been an only child very close to her father, and she was saying, my boyfriend is never there, for, he's not there for me now. I really need him now. He's not there for me. And I looked at her and I said, nobody can be there for you at this time except God. You were so close to your father. You can't expect this 22-year-old boyfriend to be there for you, to fill this void for you that you feel because of your lost father. You see what I mean? People try to be, try to encourage, but he was insufficient. No doubt this is not a satisfying answer to the pain that's in her heart of not being able to bear a child and because she was not able to bear him having to take a second wife, and now that second wife picking on her every year. There was a lot of pain there, a lot of hurt in Hannah. But Elkanah was trying the best he knew how. And ultimately, only God could fill that emptiness for Hannah. No human being ever really could. So, Think about this. When your spouse, when, you, when someone who's close to you is trying to help you, maybe that's the best they know how. Maybe that's the best they know how. You will try to encourage someone someday and you will be insufficient, unable to do that. Because a lot of times, this sort of pain cannot be filled, cannot be comforted by just another human being alone. It has to be comforted by God. 
And he's like, come on, eat, eat. There's two plates. I mean, this ought to encourage you now. The man's trying. This pain that she has is going to make her a much better woman because out of pain comes greatness. Hannah is one of the people that is looked to in the Scriptures of enormous faith, of enormous godliness. And it is only because of the pain that she went through that the greatness comes. Out of pain comes greatness. Without pain, there is rarely greatness. And I'm not sure if I read this to you before, but I'm going to read it again. And this is, this is Charles Spurgeon's expansion on the verse, It is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. Out of Lamentations 3.27. So this is what he says about being good for a man to bear the yoke in his youth. He is not fit to be a leader who has not run the gauntlet of contempt. Praise intoxicates if it be not preceded by abuse. Men who rise to eminence without a struggle usually fall into dishonor. The yoke of affliction, disappointment, and excessive labor is by no means to be sought for. But when the Lord lays it on us in our youth, it frequently develops a character which glorifies God and blesses the church. The pain that you go through in life will be the source of greatness for you. And this pain that Hannah is going to go through is going to be the source of greatness in her. It was out of this pain that she bore Samuel. It was out of this pain that she committed Samuel to a lifetime of service to God. So there will be pains and struggles in your life that people around you who really love you will try to comfort. And you will find their comfort insufficient for your pain. And so you cannot... Throw yourself out of the church and say, well, my family doesn't help me enough. The church doesn't help me enough. So I think I'll go to the world. This is the common plea, and I think I'll go to the world. Well, if you think that your family and the church hasn't helped you, you go to Satan and you see how much help he'll be to you. But she committed this to God, and it is out of that pain that greatness will come. You know, I'm a Civil War buff, and I, I really think so much of, of, of this man, Stonewall Jackson. If you want to read about a godly man, read about Stonewall Jackson. This guy prayed all the time and sought God, and he was absolutely fearless, absolutely fearless in battle. People would say to him, aren't you afraid to ride on your horse like this? And he says, no, I'm as comfortable here as I am in my own bedroom. He says, because I'll be here as long as God wants me here. Just the man prayed, godly, godly man. But the man would have been absolutely nothing without the Civil War. The Civil War made him great. He was an incompetent teacher at the Virginia Military Institute. His students hated him because he was such a poor teacher, he would stare at a blank wall and memorize his lectures. Just memorize his lectures and then go in and recite his lectures. He was such a poor teacher. But the Civil War made him great. You see this many times in battle. Life's 
struggles will make you great if you allow God to work in them. Out of pain comes greatness. And this is what we're going to see. And that pain cannot always be filled by another. So don't look to your fiancé. Don't look to your husband. Don't look to your wife to be able to always fill every pain and every ailment that you have. We cannot. They cannot. You can never fulfill everything to another person. It is God who fills. One of the best things we can do is to direct, to comfort our loved ones and direct them back to the loving hands of God. Because God is the one who can fill. God is the one who can fulfill. God is the one who can redeem and protect. So learn to direct them into the loving hands of God graciously. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the truth of your word, which teaches us, which calls us to greater things. Lord, thank you for the godliness of this man, Elkanah, that he would take his family up yearly to worship God, that he would sacrifice, and then he himself would bring the sacrifice, the portion back to his family so that they too could enjoy with him. Father, I pray that you take these young men and you make them godly young men to lead their families in the way of Jesus. That they would become the spiritual leaders in their homes. That they wouldn't become like men who say, oh, my wife does it. But they would rise up and become the spiritual leaders in their homes. Father, I pray for these young women that you would give them hearts like Hannah to learn to cry out to you. And Father, for these young people, Take the pains in their lives, the challenges in their lives that are sure to come and bring greatness through them. Through those pains, bring greatness, I pray. And Father, I commit them to you. Have mercy on them, I pray. In the name of Jesus. Amen.